under the scripture, Jeremiah chapter 18. I want to read uh, the first 17 verses. And as you find that, please, please pray with me. Father, have we now come to the scripture, which is your word. We pray that we would listen to it as such. God, you do that work in us that's necessary for us to be able to receive it, to be able to hear it, to be able to understand it, to be able to live it out. I pray that it humbles us and gives us comfort. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah in chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 1. Please hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. The word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way, and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, That is in vain. We will follow our own plans, and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations, who has heard the like of this? The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. Does the snow of Lebanon leave the crags of Assyrian? Do the mountain waters run dry, the cold flowing streams? But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. Everyone who passes by it is horrified and shakes its head. Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. You might remember from last Sunday, although many of you were home because of the weather, but last Sunday... When we took up a, a relatively well-known expression in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says to the, to the people, or God does through Jeremiah, don't boast in your own wisdom. Don't boast in your own strength. Don't boast in your riches. 
By that he was saying, don't take confidence in, in that which is true of you, in your own wisdom. Don't think you can think your way through this. Don't, don't trust in your own strength. Don't, don't think you have enough strength to make it. Don't, don't trust in your own riches. Don't, don't think you have enough riches to buy yourself out. And to ancient Israel, Judah, what he was saying to them was, judgment's coming. Don't, don't think you can think your way out of this. Don't think you're wise enough to avoid this. Don't, don't think you're strong enough to overcome what's coming towards you. Don't think you're wealthy enough to buy your way out. He says the same thing to us in the context of our relationship with him, he says, don't trust in your own wisdom when it comes to your own sin. Don't trust in your own might to think you can overcome it. Don't, th- don't trust in your riches to think that you have anything within yourself with which to purchase, with which to commend yourself to me. God, he says, as I come in judgment, don't trust in that. Don't boast in that. Don't take confidence in that. But take confidence in this, that you know and understand the Lord, that you know me. Take confidence, take your trust, put your trust in me. That you know me, that you know I delight, he says, in steadfast love and justice and righteousness. That that's who I am. Take, take confidence in, in that. And so really, we've come to the book of Jeremiah really to get to know God. Now we can do that in any portion of Scripture. In fact, it takes the whole breadth of Scripture really to come to know God, to understand Him. And so we're coming here to to understand Him. And we realize that there's a great emphasis as we come here on judgment. And that's because of the historical place in which the ancient tribe, land of Judah, finds itself. It finds itself in the midst of God bringing judgment, and that judgment will come. It hasn't come quite yet. Jeremiah looks into the future and he sees it, and he, he knows it's going to come even in, in, his, in his lifetime. He prophesies over a period of 40 years, but he knows at the end of his, his life this judgment is, is really going to, going to come. But we come to Jeremiah, even in the midst of, of looking at God in his judgment, because God is complex. And any time we try to get to know someone, there's complexity there. To, to really get to know another person is, is a difficult thing. To, that person has to reveal themselves to you, things that may not be obvious to you. And, and that's especially true when we're talking about God, when we're coming, when we're coming to him. And so we have to be cautious that we, we really understand the breadth of him and even explored Jeremiah's word to us concerning who God is. I've never been one who likes short statements, as, as, as you know. Um, wouldn't make a very good advertiser for product or politicians. I, I simply don't like slogans. They always trouble me when I read them. Um, it used to be, I suppose, that a person's name could be enough to describe who they were if the name was perhaps Miller or Brewer or Smith or something like that. Oddly enough, the word Vogler means birdkeeper. Uh, although my father did fulfill his calling in marrying a woman whose last name was Partridge. <laughs> so I suppose that does describe us a bit. But I married someone whose name was Pokey. I don't know what that means. Keeper of, I don't know. People are always late. But the... Um, uh, so, so that doesn't help us any, any more. Short statements. I, I know I've been affected badly by an old uh, 19th, early 20th century economist named Alfred Marshall who once said, all short statements about economics are misleading, except for the one I just made. And uh, 
but, but there's a sense in which that's true. We have to be very careful. Vision statements. When you read the vision, vision statement of an organization, it can sound great, but you really have to ask a lot of questions about that. If they can summarize everything they can do in a phrase or one sentence, is that really true? The name of our church, Grace, yes, we wanted to communicate something. It's important for us to, to do that, but, but you really have to understand the word grace to, to really get it. If not, you could be misled by that. People make short statements about God. God is love. Yes, he is. But God is light. And so we have to be cautious as we make short statements. So when we come to Jeremiah, one of the great blessings here is that it widens our view, it widens our focus of who God is. We can see something of him in in the midst of history, in the midst of his relationship with this ancient people of Judah. And and we catch a glimpse, really, of, of who he is. He says, I want you to boast that you know me. That you, del- that, that you know that I delight in, in steadfast love. I delight in justice. I delight in righteousness. And so we see that here as we come. Even in the midst of this, of this announcement, pronouncement, prophetic word against ancient Judah, the judgment is coming. And, and it is coming. It's, it's undeniable. We know that it does come. Uh, he says to Jeremiah, I, 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 I consecrated you even before you were conceived in the womb. This is coming. I knew you. I called you for this, made you for this purpose, to bring this word of judgment. And this word of judgment is just, of course, because God has made a covenant. God had made a covenant with his people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made promises to them to be their God. They were to be his people. He, he laid out the stipulations of that covenant very clear with, through Moses. He said, this is, this is who I am, thus. This is who you are to be in relationship with me. You're to have no other gods before me. You're to, to worship me and me only as I reveal myself to you. So, so don't make any graven images. Don't take my uh, name lightly. Don't use it in, in ways that is inappropriate, that, that isn't really true, isn't really true of me, so don't take the name, my name in vain, set aside time every week on this Sabbath day to to consecrate yourself to me, to to, to enjoy all that I give to you, to rest in me, to say, yes, I worship that God, he will care for me, to do that in your relationships with each other, make sure they're faithful, make sure they're pure, that they reflect who I am, because I've made you in my image, that's how you're to live. And if you live in such a way like this, then you'll be under my blessing if you rebel against me and serve any other, if you rebel against me and are satisfied by any other, if you rebel against me and, are, and allow yourself to be defined or directed or delight in any other, then, then, then the curse, my curse will be upon you and you'll lose this land and you won't know the prosperity and the provision which I give to you. You'll only know what is death. And so he lays that out for them. Blessings. And curses, and through through history, through this history of Israel, we get to see God's dealing with His people. And one of the things we see is the very steadfast love, the patience, really, of God. We have to ask the question: Why did this judgment take so long? Why so many centuries? And you get the sense that what we have here is this person on death row, and. The final execution isn't going to come until all the appeals are made. And God continues to appeal and continues to appeal and continues to appeal so that he can show his justice. Yes, he's really just in doing this. Because the people continually sin against him. It's amazing, he's both the prosecutor and the one who brings the appeals. It's as if he's saying, no, I'm really just here. I really am. 
And so we see that in the days of Jeremiah. We, we see it because, because this judgment has already been pronounced. It was pronounced while King Manasseh ruled and reigned in Judah. A great time, two generations really before Jeremiah. Before the judgment came. And Manasseh was a skunk. He, he, he ruled for a long time, but he brought in every abomination you could ever imagine, including child sacrifice, into the land of Judah. And so God says, I'm going to judge you because of this, and here it is. But, but still, judgment didn't come right away. He brought, as we know, through good King Josiah, the finding of the law, so that the law was read, so that the charges were brought, so that here's the blessing and curses of the covenant, so they would know. He reinstituted the sacrifices in such a way that the people would know, yes, this is what it really means to follow God. This is the, the delight, the greatness of following after God and being his people. And, 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 and they did that for a time. But after Josiah's death, it was clear that that really wasn't in their hearts. Because as the next king Jehoiakim came, they reverted back to all the abominations of King Manasseh. And so God again saying, See? What else, what else can I do here? I brought you the law. I've laid it out. I've, I've read it. You're, you're aware of this. You have no excuse. And, and yet you continue to turn, to turn against me. And so his patience, his steadfast love with the people of, of, of Judah. And so now he calls Jeremiah to inform the people about who he is, about who God is. There's this characteristic of God. There's this attribute of God that they needed to know that we need to know as well. So we took Jeremiah out on what we call an enactment prophecy. That is, he said, I want you to go somewhere, look at something, and, and as you do, I'll speak to you through it. Uh, you'll know what I mean as you look at this. It, it wasn't the first kind of enactment prophecy that uh, Jeremiah was involved in. You might remember in chapter 5, God sent him on a mission. He says, I want you to go to and fro in Jerusalem and look for somebody who's righteous. And so he did that. And he looked and it's as if he had a questionnaire with him and he asked the children and he asked the, the kings and he asked the adults and he asked everybody about their righteousness and he found that none was, none was righteous. In chapter 7, God says, I want you to go to Shiloh. I want you to take a road trip. I want you to go to Shiloh. Uh, so that you'll see that just simply having the temple in Jerusalem doesn't mean that I won't bring judgment upon Jerusalem. Because in Shiloh, there was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the first home of the Ark of the Covenant. So I want you to go to Shiloh and I want you to look at that place and report back what you see. And what he saw was destruction and devastation. He said, see... Just having the presence of the ark didn't save the people. Just having the presence of the temple in Jerusalem won't save the people. And in chapter 13, and we won't do this one, uh, we've talked about those others. And in chapter 13, Jeremiah gets an interesting one. He, he's told to go out and purchase a linen uh, a loincloth and wear it for a while. And then... He's told to take that linen Lloyd cloth on a trip and goes, goes far away to the Euphrates and bury it. Even then, guys weren't so good at laundry, I suppose. Uh, and bury it. And then he was to go back home. And he was going to wait a while. And then he was to go back and get it and unbury it. And you can only imagine what it must have been like. And that was the point. 
God said, now through this, just as this linen loincloth was to cling to a man, so Israel was to cling to me, just as if now this is spoiled and no longer can be used as it was once meant to be used to cling to a man, Israel is spoiled and no longer clings to God. And so all of these things, time after time after time, God was going to the people of Judah saying, this is the situation, repent. This is the situation, repent. And then Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah would, would see things. He would, he would see what it was going to be like. He would see what the devastation was going to be like. And he would report it to the people. And he, says, he says, repent and this won't happen. And still they wouldn't repent. And now he says, I want you to go. And I want you to, to go down to the potter's house. Very common thing to do. Not uncommon at all to have a potter in the community. And, and many of them. So I want you to go look at this situation. And, and I'll speak to you through it. And so he does. He goes there and he sees the potter working at his wheel, making a vessel, making a pot. And, 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 and in the midst of this, something happens that's not unusual. And the pot that's being formed there doesn't come out quite right, doesn't look quite right to the, um, to the potter. It has a, a mar in it. It's spoiled in some way. It's damaged. It's disfigured. The potter looks at it and he kind of reforms it. He just changes it. Just reforms it. Because it, it wasn't coming out the way that, that he had wanted it to come out with. No, no one would question that in the potter. It's, it's the right to do it. He's the potter. It's just clay. And so he's making this thing. He has in his mind what it's supposed to be. And he has every right to change it and for it to come out however he desires. So it says here, I went to the potter's house. There he was working and his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to him. Good to the potter to do. So what's this mean? Verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I don't know about you, but that kind of sends a shiver through my spine. Because God is saying, listen, I made you. You're clay to me. I'm the potter in this story. You're the clay in this story. I can make you however I wish. I have the authority to do that. I'm the author. Therefore, I have authority. I own you. I made you. I can do with you however I wish. You can never question me. That oh, doesn't mean we can't say, God, this confuses me. Oh, what's but you can never stand against me. How can the clay stand against the potter? It would make no sense at all. This is an image that had been used by other prophets as well. God using it through other prophets as well. For instance, in, in Isaiah and uh, chapter 29, uh, he speaks of, uh, the, I'm sorry, 25, he speaks of, shoot, I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in Isaiah 25 or 29. I should have written it down. Maybe I didn't. Hang on. Oh, there it is. Yeah, 29. I was right. Verse 16. Isaiah said, God says, O oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in, dark, in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing made should say of its maker, He didn't make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. God had just told them that He was going to raise up this pagan king Cyrus to come and be their deliverer. And they say, we don't like that. How can you do that? God says, huh? You have this upside down. 
I'm the potter, you're the clay. I can do this. I have every right to do this. I have the authority to do that. And there's something in us as human beings, there's something in us as Americans that say, I don't like that. I don't like someone saying, no, I have absolute and utter sovereign authority over you and, and everything. And then again in Isaiah in chapter 45, uh, similar kind of image. Um, again, Israel questioning God. He says, verse 9, Woe to him who strives or quarrels with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. <laughs> Mine has way, way too many. Um, <laughs> Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or a woman, With what are you in labor? In other words, God has every right over us to do as he wishes. Again, there's a sense in which that's given to us to take our breath away, to put us, can I say it this way, in our place in terms of who we are in the midst of all of this. You know, perhaps, in Romans 9, Paul uses this in the midst of a a deep discussion about our own salvation, the salvation of people, and how God dispenses his mercy and his his compassion and his grace and his justice and all of that. And he, he says... Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault that his wife, he's the sovereign one, why? How can he find fault in us? Who can resist his will? And, and the apostle just writes back very matter-of-factly, knowing these images through Isaiah and through Jeremiah, he says, but who are you, O man, to act, answer back to God? What, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And the answer is, oh, no. No. Because you're just the pot in all of this. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, for honored use and another for dishonorable use? And this image, you see, it's not by accident. It's not just simply by way of, of nice metaphor. If you go back to Genesis in chapter 2, when we have this fleshing out, no pun intended, of the creation of Adam, uh, he speaks, God does, for instance, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generation of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the whole ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The little word formed there in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is the same root word as the word for potter. He formed us. He made us as he desired to make us. And the thing that we must always bear in mind, the thing that we need to know about God, the thing we need to know about us, is he's the potter and we're the clay. We exist for him. It's in his mind that we exist. And he can make us, he can do with nations, he can do with people, he can do with his creation. However he wishes, however he wills. Now, now the question that comes to our mind is, wait a minute, I'm different than just clay. And of course the answer is, I wasn't at first. <laughs> I was just dust. Now, he made us, formed us into something 
better than dust if you will give us a soul, give us a relationship with him different than just a clay pot. We know that this is, a, this is an image that he's using here in Jeremiah and other places. But still the idea is necessary for us to keep in our minds, to keep in our heads, to keep us in our place, to humble us before God, to know that he really is God and we really are not. And we need to yield, if you will, to him. He's God. We really are not. And so he says to ancient Judah, you need to know this. I can, I can do whatever I will. This is all throughout the scripture. I, I just kind of hit some buttons on my computer and came out with some verses about, about God's sovereign rule in our lives. First Chronicles chapter 29. David says, both riches and honor come from you and and you rule over all that is you have a sovereign rule god over all in your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all you're the sovereign on psalm 33 speaks of the nations the lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing he frustrates the plans of the people the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generation he he he's sovereign over kings the king's heart proverbs 21 is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He's, con- he's sovereign over nature, Jeremiah chapter 14. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah speaks, Who has spoken? And it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Daniel chapter 4. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living one may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to it whom he will and sets over it the lowliness of, lowliest of men. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle writes to his son in the faith. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made this good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. God is sovereign. We must never forget that. However else we relate to that, however we think of that, whatever else that does to us, it should humble us and we should realize we're in his presence. And so so he comes to ancient Judah with that word, and that word should strike a measure of fear in them to realize that God can do with you as you will if you thwart his authority, if you, if you go against him, if you rebel against him. What do you think he's going to do? And then God lays it out and he says, but even in the midst of all that still, I am just in my doing. You can trust me. Notice how he puts it, verse 7. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, And if that nation, concerning with which I have spoken, turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. Saying, listen, 
I can do whatever I want. But here's what I want. If you will repent. Even if I said I'm going to destroy you. If you repent, I won't destroy you. What a word from God. That's a very helpful word because it, it takes away some of the confusion of some Old Testament passage that you might be familiar with, with where it said that God has repented or changed his mind. Like in, in ancient Nineveh where Jonah goes and says, you're going to be destroyed. That's the final word. And then they repent and they're not destroyed. And everybody's confused. Did God change his mind? Well, not really. This contingency always existed. It's always in his mind. This is his very character. This is who he is. God isn't like a man that he changes his mind. How foolish would that be to think that God's mind could actually be changed? He's all wise. He knows everything. He knows the future. Why would he have to change his mind? But, but, but if he says he's going to destroy, he, he might not say, unless you repent. But, but that's always implied, he says here. And then he goes on to say this too, verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. In other words, ancient Judah, I know the promises I've made for you. Remember, they were always with a sense that you would be my people, that you would follow after me, and you haven't, and so I'm going to destroy you unless you repent. And so he lays it out. He says, Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm shaping, the potter is, disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. God continues to come to this people. Continues to prove his own Steadfast love, his own righteousness and justice. And notice how they respond. But they say, that's in vain. We'll follow our own plans and everyone will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. And God says, this is amazing that you would do that. And so he says, I'm the potter. I will come and I will make one who will destroy you. It humbles us to think of this one who has utter rule over everything. But he says, you can still trust me because I delight in steadfast love and I delight in justice and I delight in righteousness. If you repent and turn to me, I will make you in a way that will transform your very, your very life. And that's the comfort of this great deep sovereignty of God because who can transform a broken pot? Who can transform a defective pot? Only God. He can remake it and remold it. And that he does in our very lives. The confidence that we have, of course, comes to us in the work and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the very agency of his Holy Spirit who makes and remakes and molds and remolds us. So yes, it's frightful to think there is one who has absolute control and can do whatever he desires, whatever he wishes in every circumstance, in every situation. How scary that would be unless we knew that he was one who delighted in steadfast love. He's the one who delighted in justice, who delighted in being right and doing that which is right. That is God. So we trust him. 
Maybe you, when you were a kid, I learned a hymn when I was a kid. First verse, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. See, that's what God expected out of ancient Israel. To say, oh yes, okay, thank you. I know you've been telling me this for generations. I, I know you've been telling me this for now for chapters in the book of Jeremiah. I know, I know Jeremiah's life has been dedicated to, to come to us and, and, and bring this word about, about who you are. And I get it now. You're the potter. We're the clay. We're, we're defective. If we're going to be defective, then you're going to destroy us. But, 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 but remake us. promise would come when he would say, I will remake you. The day is coming. We'll read in Jeremiah. When God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And that new covenant will be a covenant where God will be their God. He will be their people. And he will say, you wanted to teach each other to know me because you all will know me from the least of you to the greatest. Declares the Lord, I'll remake, I'll remold. I'm the potter, trust me. And this very one has come, this one who is the remaker, the remolder, because he's going to remake and remold in this image. But to get us there... There was a night that this one was betrayed, this Jesus. He took bread and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples that were with him. And he, he said, this is my body. And this one who is the potter will break it for you. And he said, taking the cup that was there, this cup is that new covenant. And this new covenant requires my blood so that there can be forgiveness, remission of sins the potter is remaking, molding. Trust me. It says, as often as you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes, what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that we are defective, spoiled, There's only one that can remake and remold. The good news for us is that he's the potter who delights in steadfast love. He's the potter who's faithful to all his word. He's the potter who says, I I remake and remold. Trust me. Our response is to say, have your way. Have your way. You're the potter in the clay. Mold me, make me. After your will, like Jesus, I'll wait, I'll yield, I'll be still and know that you are God, the potter, I am the clay. Let's pray, Father, pray for me, for us. In this moment around this table, that we would be humbled by our position, by who we are as those who have been made as creatures, as created ones, to realize that our lives are not our own, that there is one who has made us, who is our author, who has authority, who is our owner, who is the one who is making us after his own will and has every right to do that, has every right to judge. We're grateful that he has in his mind 
to make those who repent, to make those who come to him, to make those very ones into the likeness of his son. I pray for me, for us, that we would be humbled and comforted by the fact that you are the potter and that we're the clay. We would pray that you would make us in the very image of your Son so that we would live to your glory. Thus we repent of our sins. We repent of going our own way. We repent of our stubbornness. We repent of that anything which has kept us from you and become yielded and still before your very presence and pray that you would forgive us and make us in the image of your Son. This we pray. And now I pray you would take this bread and this juice and set it aside in such a way that that we'd be able to see, fellowship with, receive from our Lord Jesus. Knowing by His Spirit we're being transformed, being remade. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.